Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, for those of you that are here as couples or watching as couples, this is a message about marriage. Uh, it's Peter's directive to husbands and wives in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, so I could spend a lot of time telling you a lot of different stories about marriages and weddings that I've been a part of and counseling sessions that I've been a part of. I could tell you about couples that have come to me in premarital counseling that were just uh, completely in love, or at least they said they were completely in love, but they both had a lot of baggage and circumstances going on in their lives, but they just begged me to do their wedding. And probably uh, I shouldn't have done their wedding or officiated their ceremony, but I did. And within a year, they had a baby. Within another year, she had accused him of abuse and infidelity, and they were separated. I could tell you stories about couples sitting in my office and, and talking to them, working them through pornography addictions. I, I could talk to you about couples who have sat down in my office and who are not willing to face reality, and as a result, their marriage is hanging on by a literal thread, and they may or may not make it. I could tell you stories about uh, wonderful stories, stories of reconciliation and forgiveness and repentance. And just to be honest, if you were talking with me, you could share with me a half a dozen or more of those stories. If I had the time to listen to you and you had the time to listen to me, some of you would tell me stories about your marriage that would probably blow my mind and how God has worked and interacted and protected and cared for. And then some of you would tell me stories about your marriage or marriages of those that you know that would blow my mind for the opposite reasons, for the... Um, the, the problems, the divorce, the separation, the infidelity, the brokenness that is still there and still present. And a lot of times we as Christians, we, we look around our world and we think, my word, things are just falling apart. And, and we want to fix it. We want to in, interact with it. That's why we pray for revival and we bemoan the immorality that is so prevalent and, and the wickedness and the self-orientation and the focus on self that is so evident in our society. And we wonder, what in the world can we do about it? I, I think one reason why Peter moves to talk to husbands and wives is because while there are a lot of things out there that you and I can't do much about, other than share the good news of Jesus with lost sinners. Folks, for those of us that have a home, for those of us that are husbands and wives, there is something we can do in here, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, and in our homes. A society is only as strong as its marriages, as its homes. And what we need as Christians is to start where our relationships begin. And as Peter directs us, it's in our relationships as a husband and as a wife. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Love Thy Body, puts it this way. She says, in the biblical worldview, marriage is not something humans may simply redefine at will. It comes with its own definition as the first community reflecting the community of the Trinity. In that sense, here's something that we need to understand. We need the biblical picture of marriage as a counterpoint to the contemporary contempt for monogamous marriage. 
You look around you and you see society's values regarding sexuality and regarding individuality and regarding self-definitions and self-identification and transgenderism and homosexuality and all those things. It really is an ultimate attack on the institution of marriage that God set up in the book of Genesis. What we need as Christians is that perspective that is foundational and that is full of a framework that helps us understand what is it that God desires of us, how does he see marriage, and how do we interact with one another? How do we make sure that our marriages stay together? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians of uh, days gone by, in a wedding sermon, he put it this way. He said to, he said to the couple, He said, it is not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. His implication being that when God puts a couple together, they are to enter into a covenant, a commitment to one another that sustains the love that they should have, but even if it doesn't, uh, the, the love doesn't remain like it once did, the commitment and the covenant pictures something that God desires. And so Peter, in this wonderful passage of Scripture, this challenging and convicting passage of Scripture, opens up some specifics for husbands and wives. Now, it's seven verses long, and six verses are directed at the wives, and one verse directed at the husbands. Some of you are going to read that and think, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? Is Peter the chauvinist that we think that the biblical writers were? I don't think that's the case at all. One thing we need to remember is in the context of, the, of this setting, Peter's talked to the church at large about how they're to submit to government. And then the next paragraph, he talked to the slaves about submitting to the masters, and he didn't give any words to the masters in that particular context. And the example, the model there, of course, is Jesus, who submitted to suffering and the cross so that we could experience salvation. And so in the context, then Peter's talking to wives who are to submit to their husbands. The reason he focuses on wives to begin with is that's in the greater context of what he's doing in this wonderful letter. That he speaks to the husbands at all is really in, in a shift from what's going on in the previous paragraphs, but it's a recognition of the importance of the biblical home and what God desires and what God expects. Again, one thing you need to remember is that in this particular era of Christian history, of human history, the Greco-Roman world did not view wives, did not view women with high regard. Nancy Piercy put it this way, and she's reflecting on Paul's writings, but it's the same for Peter. She said, at a time when wives were considered legally the possession of their husbands, Paul's writings were radical. Peter's as well, by elevating the status of women, they delivered a severe blow to the double standard that was the pre-Christian norm. Quoting Rodney Stark, a historian and sociologist, he said this, the Christian woman enjoyed a far greater marital security and equality than did her pagan neighbor. Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than the women did in the Greco-Roman world at large. So picture this, and we have to read this not through the lens of 21st century culture. 
where we hear wives be submissive to husbands. And our first thought is, hold on a second, I don't like that. That, that, that rocks my worldview. I'm not in this, in this world that has been shaped by feminism and egalitarianism. Whether you agree with that or not, it has affected the way we see these passages of Scripture. We tend to think of that and say, hold on a second, the Bible's outdated, let's ignore it. But you got to put yourself in the, here, in, in the audience, Peter's original audience. Peter's original audience would have been sitting in a church similar to what we're doing, and they would have received this letter from Peter, and they would have heard all the things we've already preached on about God redeeming us and changing us and rescuing us and us being submissive to government and Jesus dying on the cross, taking our sins and, and, and masters and slaves. And then Peter would have said, wives, and half the audience or more would have perked up because in that culture... To even comment about the women in the room was an elevation of status. Because the way the Greco-Roman world worked, husbands essentially had wives as property. They could do whatever they wanted to with them. They were little more than property and didn't really have autonomy in terms of decision making. So when Peter spoke to them and said, you have a biblical obligation for the way that you interact in your home, that's an elevation of status. It's a picture in the New Testament of God's elevation of women in a world that didn't think very much of women. It's a beautiful picture. So don't read it through the lens of today's culture and say, hold on, let me just ignore this at the outset. Read it through the lens of the early Christians who would have heard this as an elevation of status and then an expectation of particular behavior. Here's how we're going to unpack this. I'm going to give you, as wives, a practice, a principle, and then a purpose. And then for the husbands, I'm going to do the very same thing. I'm going to give you a practice, a principle, and a purpose that comes directly from the text. So let's read the text and then unpack these specific applications for us in today's culture. 1 Peter 3 verse 1, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Catch that. It's not women be submissive to men. It's wives in submission to their own husbands. This is not a gender statement. It's a structure statement in the home. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When you see, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, now I'm going to talk to the wives first simply because that's the order in which Peter puts this. Uh, let, me, let me clarify a couple of things. First of all, before I preach this sermon to you, I let my wife read it uh, to make sure that what I said wasn't just appropriate with her. That's not what I mean. But so that she could catch some things and see some things from the perspective of a wife and from the perspective of a godly submissive wife that helps us understand this text better. And so she's helped with some of the application points here. And I'm grateful to her for that. I'll speak more about her in a moment. So here's the practice. This is the practice. This is 
the application. If Peter's going to tell you to do anything, this is it. Godly wives submit to and respect their husbands. It's very clearly what he's saying. The beginning point for Christian relationships regarding husbands and wives, for wives in this text, is to submit to their husbands. What's the implication? Uh, it, by the way, what it's not, let me say it this way. Sometimes it's helpful for us to understand what it's not. Submission in the biblical context is not a, a, a requisite for absolute obedience, it's not that. That's not what Peter's asking wives to do. Peter's not saying by this text that women are to engage in immoral or unethical activities because their husband commands them to. It's not that at all. Another thing that submission is not, it's not written to the husbands. This is not a passage of Scripture that we as husbands are to go home to their, our wives and say, see, the pastor even said that you're to submit to me. That's not who it's, it's not written to husbands. It's written to wives from Scripture. This is God's directives to wives, not the husband telling the wife, hey, you've got to submit to my leadership. Another thing that submission is not, submission is not staying around when, you're, when you are facing abusive behavior. This is not some kind of, of text that, that a woman who is suffering under an abusive husband should look at and say, hold on a second, I'm, I'm really wrestling with this. The Bible says submit to my husband, but my husband is beating me. Or my husband is, is, is speaking to me in a way that is, is so derogatory and so demeaning that I, I don't know what to do about that. Or, or my husband is living a, in, in an unfaithful life and abuse follows that. Or my husband is abusing my children. Let me say this very, very clearly. Submitting to husbands out of respect is not agreeing to live in an abusive relationship. It's not. And if you're listening, if you're watching, or if you're present, and you're in an abusive relationship, uh, listen, you need to reach out for help. I'm available. We have connections to Christian counselors who we can put you in touch with uh, pretty quickly and help you get in a situation where you're safe and your family is safe. So submitting to your husband is not agreeing to uh, abusive behavior. So what is it? Submitting to your husband is essentially, it means not nagging and criticizing. It means recognizing that there's a structure in place. The structure is this, that in the home, there's got to be organization. By the way, God is the God of order. Paul says that in the book of 1 Corinthians. The, the Trinity, by the way, and Nancy Pierce reflected on this and the idea of marriage and community, the Trinity is a structure. God the Father sent Jesus. Jesus submitted to God the Father. And, and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit submitting to God the Son. It doesn't make God the Son superior to the Holy Spirit or God the Father superior to Jesus. But in the structure, the relationship, one sent and one obeyed. One, one sent and one submitted. It's the same picture that God expects of Christian marriages or wives, uh, Christian wives in a marriage to submit to their husbands out of that structural principle. There can't be a, a, a two-headed thing that's called a monster, right? And so Peter's implication here is that the reason wives are to submit to their husbands, the picture there is out of structure. It's not to try to control or be in charge. It's to be submissive. And ultimately, the picture is that there's got to be a decision and the decision, the, the, the buck stops with the, the husband in terms of spiritual leadership in the homes. So how do we do that? Practically, ladies, don't nag and, and don't, don't criticize and don't always complain. 
Uh, Let me just say as a husband and, and say to you as wives, nagging, complaining, and criticizing rarely work. If you get what you want out of nagging, criticizing, and complaining, I promise you he didn't do it with a godly attitude. Okay, so, so what does that look like? The practice is a godly wife submits to and respects their husband. Uh, and, and by the way, Peter didn't really qualify that and say, your husband, if he's doing everything right, you're to do that. Uh, we've qualified that a little bit by saying that you shouldn't stay in an abusive relationship. But, but in, in larger terms, he's talking to wives who are married, in some cases, to unbelieving husbands. So the reason submission was important there is in the Greco-Roman world, an unbelieving husband who worshipped a different God would have expected his wife to follow him in worshipping the deity of his choice. So if that wife who was a Christian was in in that relationship, a husband worshipping a different God, and she rejected the worship of that particular God, Peter's advice was be submissive and respectful in every other area of behavior. Of course you're not going to be an idolater, but make sure that your behavior doesn't create conflict in the home unnecessarily so that maybe by your behavior you'll win your husband to Christ. We'll come back to that in the purpose statement in just a moment. So that's that's the practice. Here's the principle what Peter builds this upon. The principle is this. Inward beauty, reflecting a gentle and a quiet spirit, is preferred to outward beauty. Uh, His point here, and and Peter picks up on this, uh, let's see, Daniel Dorian in his commentary writes this about the Greco-Roman culture. He said, surviving statues, relief carvings, and references to hair in Greco-Roman literature are consistent in portraits, stone carvings, feasible only for the wealthy. Adult women, typically wives, wore their hair curled or braided and up on their heads. Peter singles out hair, gold, jewelry, and fine clothes because people displayed wealth in them. The reason I read that is because the Greco-Roman culture was just as guilty as we are today of putting a premium on outward appearance. Peter is not saying you can't look nice. He's not saying you can't have nice hair. He's not saying you, you, can't, you, you don't wear makeup. Any more than he's saying don't go, go out unclothed. That's not his point. He's not saying that you're not to care about your outward appearance. What he's saying is inward appearance is more important than outward appearance. Uh, every single person in this room knows somebody whose tendency is toward vanity. They are a person who cares way more about how they look than who they are on the inside. Outwardly, they're stunning. They might be stunning as a young woman or they might be stunning for their age as an older woman. But when you get near that person, man, you don't want to be around them very long because they're prideful and they're arrogant and they're stuck on themselves and they're very shallow. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying we all know people like that. What Peter is saying to wives in this context is, listen, inward beauty, a gentle and a quiet spirit is much more important than your outward appearance. He's saying to look at the heart, look on the inside, look on what matters the most. Notice how he words this. He says, but let your adorning, verse 4, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Wives, you want to see a husband react and change to you? Be a gentle and a quiet spirit. 
Be someone who on the inside is more beautiful than they are on the outside. I'm grateful that God gave me a beautiful wife. But she is way more beautiful on the inside than she even is on the outside. She's godly and she's wise and she's tremendously helpful. And I'll come to some more of that in a moment. But I'm grateful for that. That she cares about how God sees her. Not just about how everybody else is going to see her. You know, based on how much makeup she has on or what she's done with her hair. The inward person is more important. So that's the principle. Here's the purpose. Why does Peter focus on these things? The practice and the principle. And, and why does he do that? Because the purpose is this. Godly wives can win unbelieving husbands to Christ through their conduct. Peter's first focus, the people he had in mind at this particular church were those wives who had come to faith in Jesus Christ because the message of the gospel drew their heart. But they came to faith in Christ not because of their believing husband, but in spite of their unbelieving husband. And Peter's point to them about being submissive is that your character, your demeanor, your conduct, the way you carry yourself might bring that unbelieving husband to a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. A powerful story of that being exactly the case is recorded in Augustine's Confessions. Augustine being one of the great Christian writers and philosophers and thinkers, uh, the fourth century BC or fourth century AD, rather. I'm sorry, uh, a fantastic writer, and, and he, he's given us in, incredible thoughts in his Confessions and also in his work, The City of God. He recorded this about his mother Monica. He said she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Augustine's mother was seminal in Augustine's own conversion. It took Augustine many years to come face to face with the fact that he needed the gospel. He tried out different philosophies and ideas. And a praying mother brought him back to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And a praying mother, a praying wife, led her husband on, her, on his deathbed to conversion experience with Jesus Christ. Peter's implication is that a godly wife who submits to her husband, respects, listens and loves and cares for, not by nagging, not by trying to control, but by speaking rightly and wisely and caring in conduct, can bring an unbelieving spouse to faith in Jesus Christ. Can. I don't want to give you a promise because not all, this isn't a promise that it will absolutely happen. I can remember in the previous church where I served, uh, there was a godly lady who came to our church regularly, uh, and her husband was not a believer. She and I developed a conversational relationship at church, and she was an older lady. She's probably in her 60s when, when we were talking, and her husband had never trusted in Jesus to be a savior. And she prayed for him and she begged God that he would be saved. And so on a number of occasions, I went over to their house and I talked to Jim and I witnessed to Jim and I prayed for Jim and I shared with Jim. And Jim never made a profession of faith. And to my knowledge, he's never made a profession of faith, even though his godly, loving wife continues to pray for him, continues to invite him to church. Maybe he will on his deathbed. I don't know. It, but it's not a guarantee, but it is a possibility that the conduct of a godly wife can draw their husband, their unbelieving husband, to a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the wives. We'll give it another specific application in a moment. What, what does Peter say to the husbands? Here's the practice for husbands. 
Godly husbands pursue their wives with understanding and honor. Understanding and honor. Catch this that Peter writes. Husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. I can remember when my wife and I were entering into marriage counseling with her pastor, who was one of the ones who participated in our wedding. He walked through this passage of Scripture with us. He shared the first six verses and talked about uh, the conduct of wives. And then he got to verse 6 and he said, You know, it seems like the husbands get off easy. But really, he said, I think that Peter only gave us one verse because the one verse is really, really hard. That that was his his, uh, idea about this passage of Scripture. Catch that. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with her according to knowledge is the way it could be translated in a direct sense. Let me make it very clear. Husbands, understand your wives. Now, some of you are thinking, oh my, I cannot believe he just, he just said that. I can't believe the Bible says that. Let me tell you what the Bible does not say. Thank heavens the Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't say men understand women. It doesn't. It doesn't tell us that you and I are to go out and try to figure out the opposite sex. It says, husbands, know your wives. Pursue your wives with understanding. Get to know them. Know who they are. Know what's going on in their hearts and minds. Know what their desires are. Know what their dreams are. Know what their challenges are. Know what their frustrations are. Let me tell you something, husbands. If you really know and understand your wives like the Bible teaches you to, that doesn't happen without devotion and love, which is Paul's version of this passage in, in Ephesians chapter 5. It doesn't happen without that. But let me promise you, if you act as a detective and know everything there is to know about your wife, I promise you she's not going to have a hard time being willing to submit to your leadership in your home. Husbands, pursue your wives with understanding Get to know them. Figure out who they are. Listen, I can tell you as an an assured truth, many of the conflicts that my wife and I have had in our marriage have simply resulted from the fact I didn't understand what she was thinking and I didn't know what she was trying to get at, not just in a conversation, but in life in general. I was clueless. And the reason I was clueless is because I wasn't being intentional and pursuing the application of this text practice, the practice is that we're to pursue our wives with understanding and honor. Let me give you an illustration. So in verse 6, the last part of verse 6, it says to wives, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's an interesting phrase that should close up, that closes up the conversation of wives. Well, let me say it this way. The fears of, of any person are a clue in who they are. What you're afraid of kind of gives you a picture. And in our house, we have some fears. We have some fears of pine trees. Now, one of the reasons my wife has some fears of pine trees is she grew up in Louisiana. And in Louisiana, they have many hurricanes, more hurricanes than we have. And pine trees don't do well in hurricanes. They get thrown down. They get torn down. And then in the home in which we lived or the apartment in which we lived when we first got married, two pine trees landed on a car that was paid off. One of the, you know, it was a bad financial catastrophe early in our marriage. So we lost two pine trees. And, and, and here's the, the, real, the rub with this, okay? We have a large pine tree near our house. 
currently. And we need to take that pine tree down. And we've lived in our house for five and a half years. So you do the math and you think how much I've really understood my wife about wanting to take that pine tree down and needing to take that pine tree down. The point is, for you as husbands, you and I need to understand our wives. Some of you are fascinated with detective shows. I am too. I like Sherlock Holmes and all those detective shows. I'll tell you something, guys. Become a detective in knowing your wife. Know what she loves. Know what she hates. Know what she's afraid of. Defend her. Protect her. Love her. That's our obligation. That's the practice. Pursue understanding and honor of your wives. Here's the principle. Here's kind of the why of it or, or the, the, the what of it. Husbands and wives exist in relational partnership and are co-heirs with Christ. The principle is this. Notice what Peter says. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now don't get stopped by that statement about the weaker vessel. It's not a statement of superiority. It's a generalized observation about strength. In, in, in most cases, not in all, I guess, but generally, the husband in the relationship is the stronger person in the relationship, physically stronger. I don't mean spiritually stronger or emotionally stronger, but physically stronger. So Peter says you're to honor the person who's physically weaker. What, what does that mean? It basically means, guys, that you're the one who is to reach things that are higher on the shelf, and you're the one that's to open tight cans that, that your wife can't open. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. If you want to get a little more specific, you're the one to protect and you're the one to defend. If somebody comes to your house and scares your wife and somebody's about to break in, don't send her to the door with a shotgun. You're the one who's to step up and protect your family. Okay? So... But the, the principle here is that we are co-heirs of the grace of life. I want you to grasp this. this. These statements about who a wife is to be and who a husband to be have nothing to do with spiritual equality. Not a thing. Because at the foot of the cross, women and men, husbands and wives, boys and girls, children and adults, aged and young, all come to Jesus the exact same way. As sinners who need forgiveness. And when they receive that forgiveness, we are adopted into the same family. And God sees us the exact same way in terms of relationship with Him. The reason that should be striking to us as husbands, and certainly was in Peter's day, is because there is no, I, there's nothing in God's relationship with His people that says the men have a better access to God than women do. And so here's the principle. As husbands, our responsibility is to enter into a relational partnership with our wives. Why? Because we're co-heirs. I mean, my wife has the exact same status before God as I do because we both come to God through Jesus Christ. And practically that works out into a partnership. I can't tell you the number of times. Well, let me, let me put it in this way. Nearly every time I've made a decision on my own, Devoid of her influence, it's been a poor decision. And I would say that's probably the same case with the decisions my wife's made. But here's what God does. He puts a husband and a wife together, as co-heirs, to partner together. You know what happens when a couple prays about a decision? Seeks God together, humbly before God, realizing that we are equals in terms of our relationship with God. Uh, yes, ultimately, the husband's got to be the one to make the decision. Maybe if, if, there's a, if you're not sure, 
that's his role as spiritual leader. But when you come together and make that decision together, man, it's a whole lot, a whole lot better than when we just make those decisions on our own. The principle is that husbands and wives exist in relational partnership and are co-heirs with Christ. Here's the purpose, the why. Godly husbands can protect the spiritual life of their homes by honoring and understanding their wives. Catch why. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter uses a purpose clause here and he says, when husbands don't honor their wives and understand their wives and love their wives and care for their wives as they ought to, guess what happens? Their prayer life is hindered. I think it's safe to say that what Peter is acknowledging in this text and telling husbands is that the spiritual quality of your homes rests on how you love, honor, and understand your wives. If you don't care about your wife, if you don't love your wife, if you don't honor your wife, why would God hear your prayers? Why would God respond to your Request for spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's a beautiful principle. It's a principle of servant leadership. Let me say it this way. To lead in the home for husbands is not to dictate. And to submit in the home is not to be a doormat. It's to be a partner together as co-heirs of the grace of life working for God's purposes and what God desires in life. Let me give you two scripture verses that are practical applications and then we'll close with an illustration. So, so say you're, you're listening, you've been hearing all of this, like, okay, dumb it down for me. Put it on the bottom shelf. Proverbs 29, 21.9 to you wives says this, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Wives, submitting to your husbands means that you're not quarrelsome. It's an imagery that, that, think about it, every time you've been quarrelsome, has it worked? Probably not. So just take that to heart. Husbands, here's yours. Practical piece of advice from the book of Colossians 3.19. Paul says this. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. How many of you husbands are guilty of being harsh? Short-tempered? Quick-tongued? Angered because you're stressed? Who gets the brunt of that? Your wife does. And you know what? That she doesn't beat you for it is a grace Husbands, love your wives, don't be harsh with them. Simple, simple. Not easy, but simple. Let me give you an illustration to tie all this up. Say, hold on a second. But what if you don't know my marriage situation? You don't know my doofus of a husband that can't listen, hates God, hates me. You don't know my wife who doesn't listen and won't, uh, won't respond to my spiritual leadership. You don't know what I'm going through. No, I don't. But the Bible says that we're to entrust our future and entrust our situation to the God who's in control and the God who knows best. In, in verse 5, verse 6, first part of verse 6, Peter illustrates the type of wife that he's talking about by using Sarah in the Old Testament. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, my advice to you is not to go around wives and start calling your husband Lord and Master. That's not my advice. Not really is that Peter's advice either. But the only place that that is mentioned in the text, in the, in the Old Testament, comes out of Genesis 18, 12. In that particular passage, some angels had shown up. Well, the Lord had shown up to Abraham and said, next year, you're going to have a son. Now, what was staggering about that is Abraham was 99 years old when the Lord 
showed up and said, you're going to have a son. And he said, I'll do when you one better. Your wife, Sarah, who was 90 at the time, you do the math, figure out all that you want to figure out. 90 at the time is going to be the one to have that child. And here was Sarah's response. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? But you know what she did? The book of Hebrews testifies to this. She trusted what God said. Even though it was staggering, so staggering that she laughed about it. And Abraham trusted what God said. You know what happened? God brought the promise through Isaac. Because Sarah had given an example of trusting herself to the Lord. And Abraham had given an example of trusting himself to the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches us to do, or Peter teaches us to do through Jesus. In 1 Peter 2.23, he says this, He did not revile when we, when we suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's my advice to you as we close up. What if you're in a situation where you're a wife with an unbelieving husband? Don't try to coerce him into faith. Follow Peter's advice. Lovingly respect your husband. Submit to his leadership. And trust your husband of the Lord. Put him in God's hands. Pray him into God's hands. Trust that God's in control. What if you're a husband? And, and your wife isn't being the wife that you want her to be. Folks, take your responsibility seriously. And trust, trust your wife to the Lord's hands. Let God handle that spouse. And what if you're here and you're single or you're unmarried or you don't know what your future holds? Or maybe your, your marriage relationship is in the past. Your husband's passed away or your wife's passed away. What do we do? Folks, you trust yourself and your situation to him who judges justly. The advice to any of us is to let God have our circumstances and situations that are bigger than us, that are more uncertain than we are. Because guess what? He's the only one that can make miracles out of messes. He's the only one that can take a 100-year-old man, 90-year-old woman, and give them the promised child. He's the only one that can take the death of Jesus on a cross and raise up billions of followers from that Messiah who rose from the dead. He's the only one that can take the mess that is your situation and bring conviction, bring conversion, bring change, and bring restoration. Trust your circumstances to the one who brings miracles out of messes. Stand with me, if you will, as we enter into a time of response and prayer. Lord God, we come to you. We thank you that you can do what we can't do. We ask God that you forgive us where we fail to trust. We ask God that you intervene in the marriages in this room and the marriages of those that are watching on uh, whatever platform they're watching on today. Pray, Lord, you'd convict that spouse that is engaging in infidelity and bring them to a place of repentance. I pray, Lord, that you would convict that spouse that doesn't want to forgive and bring them to a place of repentance. I pray, Lord, that that marriage that's in tatters, hanging on by a thread, that you would bring both parties to a place of reconciliation uh, and covenant. I pray, Heavenly Father, for that marriage that's going great, that everything is smooth. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen that marriage and use it to be an example and testimony of your glory. Lord, I pray for that marriage that needs a miracle that needs you to intervene in a way that no one else can change it. I ask God that you'd intervene and you would move in that marriage and bring about healing and bring about uh, reconciliation and grace.
Father, I pray for those under the sound of my voice who are no longer married, those that are grieving, that listen to a message like this and and it makes their heart happy, but sometimes it makes their heart hurt because the type of marriage they had was not a perfect expression of this passage of Scripture. Help them to trust their situation to you. I pray, Lord, for those that aren't married yet, that are watching and listening. Lord, help them to be the godly men and women that would be the type of husbands and wives in the future that would glorify and honor your name and teach them from this text. Lord God, do what we can't do. Restore reconcile, forgive, redeem, heal, and show your glorious grace because we need you desperately. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.